0: This is Reverend John Ferrett And this is lesson 26 In the podcast series The Gospel According to Moses Exodus Now in these series on the Torah The Gospel According to Moses Exodus and Genesis We're trying to do four things The one thing that we're trying to do Just as a reminder We're trying to seek see how the Torah Testifies of Jesus Jesus said this in John 5, 39 All scripture testifies of me. He says that probably between 24 to 30 AD. They had no New Testament. And the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was their mainstay of the Bible, the most important books. So how does Torah testify of Jesus? Jesus said it. So we need to see that. Another thing is is that we want to see how those Hebrews coming out of Egypt understood what was being taught in the Torah. They were the audience that Moses was writing to. Oh, he was writing to us. But really the intention of God was to get to the Hebrews first. What did they hear? What did they see? And how does that help us understand what they understood? So therefore, it helps our understanding. Next is, think about those first Messianic Christians. Remember the 120 that were at the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended to the Father, and then they went back to the Upper Room. All they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And we need to understand how this was important to them. How did they see it? It's like Paul. I'm studying the Book of Romans, and after years and years and years of studying the Torah, I'm studying the Book of Romans, and all I see that he's teaching the Torah. He's teaching all the Hebrew scriptures. The book of Romans was written in 57 AD. I believe uh, Galatians came before that, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, I can't remember, maybe one or two other, but there were no gospels. This was just the beginning of the New Testament. He preached the gospel using the Hebrew scriptures. Those Messianic Christians, those 120 and then later on the 3,000, all they had was The hebrew scriptures the old testament to preach the gospel it's like like many many today what do they they call the rapture so we go to first thessalonians chapter 4 16 and 17 and these are famous verses probably for most christians today for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up some people raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we shall always be with the lord now first thessalonians was written before romans 49 to 51 a.d preceded by james preceded by the letter of probably preceded by James and the letter of Galatians. No New Testament, only the Hebrew scriptures. Now, Paul was a student of the great Gamaliel. This probably implies that Paul was like a Hebrew expert, a Bible expert. And here he is in his letter to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians is probably a Gentile church mostly Gentiles and he's trying to teach them about God's elect and how they're gathered in at the end of days and how this gathering in of the elect of God happens at the last great shofar blessed. This is the Jewish perspective in those days of the end of days and that's all they had if this makes more sense, that Paul is teaching Gentiles of Thessalonica what religious Jews already knew and accepted. <laughs> I remember reading an article and uh, talks about this whole concept of the ingathering of Israel and how this one author called it the Jewish raptor. It, it fits so well. The Gentiles and Jesus are grafted into Israel, to the olive tree Israel. We're joint heirs of the promises of God. It's possible, and it seems likely, that Paul was only teaching the concepts of the Old Testament. These Gentiles in Thessalonica were being introduced to the Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They were pagans they didn't understand the bible until they finally came and associated themselves with the synagogue of the jewish people and the god of god of israel they were connected to the second temple judaism and here's paul bringing them into the torah and into the prophets and into the writings and saying you gentiles because you're grafted in you are going to be part of the in-gathering Now a third aspect, or a fourth aspect, of why we're doing this is really summarized in Jesus' statements in John eight thirty one through thirty two. Jesus is saying, If you continue in my word, this is John eight thirty one through thirty two, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, the Greek word there for continue is meno. And it's Strong's number is G3306. But we want to know the Hebrew. So we go to the Septuagint. We're able to do that with Thayer's Thayer's Greek lexicon. He will give us the key Hebrew word or Hebrew words that are in the Septuagint that meno actually translates. And the Hebrew word is Ahmed. It's Strong's number is h 59, 15. It means to stand, to endure, to persist, to persevere. So now understanding what Jesus is talking about in Hebrew, let's reread John 8, 31 through 32 with the understanding of the word Ahmed. So if you endure life, if you persevere in life, if you Persist in serving me and trusting and obeying and relying on my word then you are truly disciples of mine this is what he means and he means us he said this there's no new testament there was no new testament when he said this this is the night before he died the hebrew scriptures here's his, his word we to study to be his true and real disciples by living out John 8, 31 through 32. And it means to study the Old Testament like we've never studied it before. These are the full four goals of why I'm doing this. This is not the only Torah study. There are many others, many great ones. I have commentaries here staring me right in the face. Here, I have my whole all my resources here at my hands great commentaries one of the most popular right now is the commentaries by dennis prager he's got his two books out and that is the rational bible exodus and the rational bible genesis and he's coming out with deuteronomy soon and even christians are excited about it so there are great commentaries and great Torah studies my approach You've seen the four things that we're trying to hit at. And we're trying to put the Bible back in its historical context. Therefore, we focus in on archaeology, geography, history, the customs and culture in those days, and even the languages of the Middle East. So let's return to our study in Exodus. And we are now in chapter 9. And we're going to read Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So reading from the New American Standard, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with, with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. Notice that. Pharaoh goes to check to see if it's true that indeed God would spare the livestock of the Hebrews, and it was true. That's a double miracle. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So here's God again pounding again, Egypt pounding her gods. God's hammer is coming down again and again and hard. Now in previous lessons, we noticed that the first nine plagues are in groups of three. In other words, three triads. And there's a pattern. So you have triad, the first triad, which is plagues one, two, and three. The second triad, which is plagues 4, 5, and 6. And the third triad, which is 7, 8, and 9. The tenth one is unique. We'll deal with that on its own. But this pattern, like Dennis Prager would suggest, this order, this harmony, suggests the, de- the design by God, the design by the Lord. And God is behind all of this in this pattern so the first plague of a triad you meet pharaoh in the morning the second plague of a triad meet pharaoh probably in the palace that's assumed and the third no warning is given now this plague is the fifth plague it's the second plague of the second triad thus meeting pharaoh probably in the palace Now, one of the things that we read is in verse 3, and it talks about the cattle in the field. Now, this is interesting. It seems probable that any animals not in the field, so they may have been corralled. If they're in a corral, if they're fenced in, they're not technically speaking in an open field or they're in pens or they're in a stable and it seems probable that there were many animals that were corralled and in stables and in shelters now it makes sense since where did pharaoh get his horses for his 600 chariots that's going to be in exodus 14 verse 7 it's likely these horses were in the royal enclosure call it a stable not in the field it's just like what we've discovered at the ancient city of Megiddo in Israel. We found the stables, actually, the enclosure in a stable. It's not made out of wood, for King Ahab and all of his horses for his chariots. Now, it could also be the same for other cattle, camels, oxen, cows. Now, when we get to verse 6, it said all the cattle. But in verse 3 it says, in the field. So this begins to make sense. That it wasn't all the cattle of the Egyptians that were destroyed. God said specifically in the field. That's kind of a double double miracle. God is going to kill only the Egyptian cattle in the field. Very specifically. And on top of that, he's not going to touch the cattle of the Hebrews. So we got a lot of miracles going on here. All of this seems, it makes sense to me as a possible explanation of what's going on. Once again, as Yahweh said, all this was to come against all the gods of Egypt. Once again, I I recommend uh, Dave Patfield's study on Exodus And I linked it at the website. So if you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org and again, Light of Menorah is all one word and you spell Menorah as M-E-N-O-R-A-H. So lightofmenorah.org all one word. If you find the picture for this podcast, which is the hammer of God, that's what it's called, right below that there will be an introduction to this podcast maybe many of, you, many of you don't realize that if you go to the website and you finally find the podcast you're interested in there's a lot more information below the picture which is the introduction to the podcast so please remember that there's a lot there and so what I've done is I've linked you to Dave Patfield's study because he really gets into a great showing us of the background of which gods are involved in these plagues. So, for instance, in Padfield's study, he shows that bulls and bull calves were considered sacred. There was the Apis bull, worshiped from 3000 BC. This is 1486 BC. And the bull, the Apis bull, was the living image of the great creator god, Pata. But the Appa's bull also, in terms of its statues that you see or the hieroglyphics on many of the temples, he has a round circle in between his horns representing the sun. So the Appa's bull is also connected to Ra, the sun god, because he got his sun disk from the god Ra. Then there's the goddess Hathor, the mama of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's got two mamas. We'll see this as the Isis later on. And she's pictured as a cow. There's Mantu, the protector of kings. And he was symbolized by an ox. Hathor's a cow. Mantu's an ox. Kunum, the great creator God of another cosmology. He's pictured as a ram. And just like in Moses' day, Amun-Ra, the great god of those days, is pictured as a ram. And the son of God is Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? Pharaoh is considered the son of God in the days of Moses. And Yahweh brought disease and death on the cattle of the Egyptians, brought destruction on their very gods. And those gods did nothing. And again, as God said, he's coming against all the gods of the Egyptians. Now, with God's hammering the Egyptians, he is bringing upon Egypt what is called in Egyptian language at that time, isfit. Isfit is the concept of disorder and evil, danger, lies, death. It's also known as chaos. Now, Pharaoh's main job, as we've discussed in previous lessons, is to prevent chaos, or isfit. He is to pers- he is, he's to preserve ma'at, which in the old kingdom of Egypt was called order and harmony, truth, goodness, life. In Moses' day, ma'at became a goddess. Worshipped in Moses' day. She didn't have any specific temples, but they knew Ma'at. She was the one that brought order and goodness and harmony. And Pharaoh, his main job was to be the key one in the battle to preserve Ma'at and stop chaos, stop Isfit. Now with regards to Pharaoh's heart, we're We hear about his heart over and over and over again. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now in the book of the dead, if you look in the Egyptian culture, and we have to understand this, the Hebrews at this time, Moses at this time, they don't know anything about the Torah. They don't know anything about God's laws. They don't understand anything about wearing tassels on their garments. They don't understand anything about Passover. They don't even know what that means they had assimilated into Egypt so for Pharaoh and his heart, Moses and his heart and all the Hebrews who are hearing this for the first time they remember the book of the dead and they remember when a soul comes into the hall of Maat after they've died their heart will be weighed on a scale so on one part of the scale will be the person's heart and the other Part of the scale will be Ma'at's feather. If a person's heart is heavier than the feather, they're condemned to Egyptian hell forever. But if it's lighter, they're righteous and holy and they're able to go dwell with the gods. So, Pharaoh, his heart better not be heavy which means he did not live up to his calling, his responsibility to maintain ma'at. He wanted his heart to be light, which means he succeeded in being a righteous king and preserving ma'at. So when we take a look at this, God is bringing chaos and isfit. And Pharaoh, he seems to be losing his gods aren't doing a thing and his magicians gave up but remember Pharaoh's heart at this time for the Hebrews and for Moses and for Aaron and for Pharaoh and the Egyptians the concept of heavy and light is completely different than than it was to us today we need to understand the Egyptian culture Now, it's interesting in here because we read that indeed, in verse 4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. God shelters the cattle of his elect. There's a Hebrew word, bachar. It's Strong's numbers H977. And it's associated with the Hebrews. You can take a look at Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. God says, I have chosen you, Israel. God has chosen Israel for his own possession. Chosen. Possession out of all peoples. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. Israel is God's chosen people. The Hebrew word, bachar. God's chosen and so God is sheltering now the cattle of the Hebrews he's also going to shelter the Hebrews physically and protect the very people now this is the second time God protects his chosen people his bakar the first time was in chapter 8 verse 22 when he protected the hebrews in goshen from the swarms and if you actually listen to that lesson it could be swarms of dung beetles it's a possibility and then the second time is here now this the cattle are protected now this makes a lot of sense because later on in exodus 12 verse 38 they left with large herds and large flocks (laughs) that makes sense god has protected them and they're God's protecting all of their cattle for the time that they're going to leave. Now this is one of God's attributes. He guards and cares for his bakar, his chosen ones, plague after plague, God's wrath coming again and again, a hammer of the Lord pounding Egyptians, but the Hebrews are not taken out of this. Can you imagine how frightened they are when a lot of the things are happening but God is protecting his chosen? Psalm 28, verse 8, you can read it. Psalm 28, verse 8. God protects his chosen ones. Now, if you're reading that and you're a Hebrew, you can say, wait a minute, let's go back to Deuteronomy. We are God's chosen. He protects his chosen ones. Remember, God told Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. He did not say Israel is my firstborn sons. They are his chosen one. God protects his chosen one. As in Psalm 28, verse 8. So any Hebrew would be able to connect the two verses. All of Israel is God's chosen son. Now, this is what God is like. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek word for bakar, H977, is the Greek word eklectas, G1588. Now, many times in the New Testament, it's translated as God's elect. Let's take a look. We'll go to Matthew 24 verses 21 through 22 and Jesus teaches for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will unless those days have been cut short no life would have been saved but for the sake of God's elect those days will be cut short elect eklectos In Hebrew, bakar, the chosen of the Lord. Now, what did the disciples think? They remember Jesus said something very interesting to them. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is in John 15, verse 16. They are the chosen of Jesus. They are the electas. In Hebrew, because Jesus is speaking Hebrew, it's bakar, God's chosen one. The disciples will say, we're his elect. We're his chosen one, his bakar. Now, when we read these verses, you have to understand, his chosen ones are in the tribulation. Because Jesus says, if I don't stop this, then everybody will be destroyed i have to stop it for the sake of my chosen ones my elect his disciples he's going to stop the tribulation for the sake of his chosen ones now remember in the book of revelation we read about seven seals and we read about seven trumpets and bowls of wrath these are like plagues of Adonai upon all people all nations, the entire earth and the Antichrist, the beast what we just read, his elect are in it, his chosen ones just like the Hebrews are not taken out in Egypt they're in the middle of it God is pounding with his hammer, the wrath of his hammer again and again but God establishes in the Exodus what he's like. God is the same then. He's the same now and forever. We depend upon this. We are looking to God and hoping that he will shelter us even in the midst the pounding of God's wrath in the end of days let's take a look at Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 14 pay attention to the words so again Revelation chapter 7 9 through 14 after these things I looked And behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now let me just stop. When you read this, it's a great multitude from all nations and all tribes. It does not say just, just, the nations and the tribes eliminating Israel. This is everybody. And you'd say, these are the Messianic believers. We can go back to Romans chapter 11. Roman, and and Paul gives us that picture of the natural branches of the olive tree, which is Israel, and some natural branches have fallen off so that we, unnatural branches, because we're not part of Israel, are grafted in. I think this is what the picture's going on here. These are the Messianic believers, Jew and Gentile, of all nations and all tribes. And we're saying salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying... Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb wait a minute we're going to connect this to the very words of God the very words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 21 through 22 he's got to stop the tribulation for the sake of his chosen ones his electas the elect of Yeshua I think we're talking about the same group This group here in Revelation 7, 9 through 14, they made it through. They did not give up. They endured by standing on his word, just like Jesus taught in John 8, 31 through 32, which we just previously discussed. Now, let's consider Matthew 24, 29 through 31. This, When we tie all this together, th- this, is th- this is the hinge pin. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his electas, his bachar, his chosen from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We put this all together. You know, the Jews get this. They know about the last great shofar. This was This was part of their end times. Discussions and beliefs in Jesus' day God will gather in his elect his electos, his bakar this is clearly understood then but not by us, the church the most church has not studied the Bible in its historical context they have not studied the Torah the prophets, the writings, the Tanakh as the Jewish people call the Hebrew scriptures the Old Testament Jesus' is elect, he said it, will be gathered in, out of the tribulation. Rapture. <laughs> this is the Jewish rapture, the ingathering. It's saying Jesus is God, and God is Jesus. It's proclaiming the truth of God's redemption plan. Jew and Gentile together disciples of Yeshua gathered in at the last shofar his elect are sheltered and guarded during the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the bowls of wrath, the pounding of the hammer of Yahweh or at least that's our hope God was like that then during the pounding of hammer of his wrath in Egypt and he said he is the same yesterday today and tomorrow Malachi 3.6 God says I never change and may it be our hope as well when the pounding of the wrath of God's hammer that he will preserve his elect it's as if God's actions against Egypt are only a picture of God's actions against the ungodly and the antichrist in the end of days To me, knowing what those first believers understood, understanding that all they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, this makes a lot more sense than much of the nonsense we hear today. You've heard it. Oh, the mark of the beast is a computer chip on your hand or on your forehead. Nonsense. Or the locusts in the book of Revelation are helicopters. Nonsense. This is apocalyptic literature. We would expect that in Jewish writing. That's a a part of the apocalyptic genre. But even if we die, who cares? We're ready. We're going to be clothed in white. And we're going to be standing before our bridegroom at the wedding feast of the Lamb and I too am going to say Amen and Amen please check out the two articles at the website these are two scholarly articles that I think you are really going to enjoy And they're on the Jewish rapture the in-gathering and how it relates to us as Christians it is just a very plausible alternative, and I just want to let you know, those of you that may be listening to this, believe in the rapture. Only forty-one percent of evangelicals, based upon Pew research in 2011, believe in the rapture. Evangelical Christians, forty-one percent. That's it. Don't think you're in the majority. And I, as a Bible historian, I take a look at this and I put the Bible in its historical context and understanding all the things that we've just been through. And that we're part of the ingathering makes a lot more sense. So we come now finally to Exodus chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 8 through 12. Then Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, kiln kiln, Sorry, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast then the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses this is the last plague of the second triad and that means God brings down his hammer hard with no warning every last plague of each triad there's no warning now we read the phrase in verse 11 that the magicians could not stand before Moses and you have heard me mention the Torah commentary by Dr. John Kareed an evangelical Bible scholar Historian, Egyptologist, archaeologist. The man's amazing. And his Torah commentary, I really believe every Christian should have. Besides Dennis Prager's and besides the JPS Torah commentary. Besides Friedman's Torah commentary. It's a very interesting perspective that Dr. Creed has. He says this. This is the final mention of the Egyptian magicians in the plague account. So after this, you guys, they're done. They appear more impotent than ever. Not only are they unable to rid the land of the disease, but they cannot even protect themselves. This final word demonstrates that they and their powers have been completely vanquished and subdued by the force of Yahweh. The Hebrew word for to stand is the same one that was used in the previous verse. It highlights a contrast. Whereas Moses and Aaron could stand before Pharaoh and perform miraculous feats, the Egyptian magicians could not even stand before the Hebrew prophets. They were done. Here we have another proof of the power of the Lord. Now this is supported by the JPS Torah Commentary. It actually uses a new translation from the Jerusalem Publication Society of the Bible where it talks about the fact that even the magicians, they could not confront Moses and Aaron. Just like Kareed, this suggested magicians lost all their power and they knew it. It was useless to confront the finger of God it was useless to confront the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because in Exodus 9 verse 13 we'll get there in the next lesson God tells Moses and Aaron stand before Pharaoh because these two had the power the power of God that was working through them now we see boils and disease are coming by man and beast awesome of hammer the awesome hammer of god falls again it's a direct attack on the god imhotep imhotep was the god of the the egyptian god of medicine and healing and padfield and again thank, i thank him for all of these references to who are the gods of these plagues he also talks about the fact that imhotep the god of medicine and healing but medicine and magic were very related, very connected there was this great great scribe god that Padfield mentions, the god Thoth in the hall of Ma'at when a soul comes into the hall of Ma'at and is going to have his heart weighed Thoth is the scribe who records the weighing of the heart he also was the favorite god of physicians and the favorite god of magicians. And again, medicine and magic connected together. Then there was Isis, one of the most popular goddesses, goddess of love. Again, she's also considered the divine mother of Pharaoh, just like Hathor. She was not only the goddess of love, but the goddess of, of medicine and magic. Poor Pharaoh. His divine mama couldn't even, wouldn't even lift a finger. None of their gods did. Finally, in verse 12, Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Boom! This is the first time that happens. We can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 4. God says, I will harden his heart. He hasn't done a thing yet. He's just been hammering the Egyptians, but all of a sudden we have that phrase. Now again, I have to urge you, watch the videos at the channel on YouTube for Light of Menorah, the two videos called His Highness's Heavy Heart. If you're a Bible scholar, you really need to delve into these because we take a look at the phrase, the heart of Pharaoh and hardening his heart from the Hebrew perspective and the Egyptian perspective so go to the website click on the YouTube icon Uh, you'll probably have to page down to find the two videos His Highness's Heavy Heart part one and part two but when we get there it certainly seems possible that this was a positive hardening and if you take a look at those videos you'll understand why The Hebrew word there is Kazakh. The Strong's number is H2388. It means to be given courage. So here we have what the hammer of God is falling again and again and again. And this is the first plague where men and women, young and old, are suffering from disease. But we remember the truth of God. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, even the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Now, if you go back to lesson 25, God wants Pharaoh to know him, and it's yada, it's experiential knowing. Adam knew his wife, yada, and they had a son. That's intimate knowing. God wants an intimate knowing of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He wants He wants them, he loves them. God doesn't want any people to perish. This is biblical. Read it in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Read it in Ezekiel 18, verses 21 through 32. So in light of this, it makes sense. God is going to give courage to Pharaoh. Courage to do the right thing. Courage to turn from his sacred duty of preserving ma'at. Turning from his duty of preserving ma'at. Courage to turn from his gods and his pride. Courage to let the people and the Hebrews go. God did nothing to his free will. He just bolstered Pharaoh's heart to perhaps and consider doing the right thing. Did it work? We're about to read about the next plague which which is going to destroy the entire Egyptian economy it's the first plague of the last triad and Yahweh as we're gonna see warns Pharaoh in detail this is about to really get bad but we know Pharaoh's fate he doesn't listen And we go back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. He loved Pharaoh. He loved the Egyptians. He loves us. We're the elect. We're his bakar. Oh, Father, we hope in you. We hope in what you're like. And when your hammer comes down, Hammer of your wrath. Pictured as seven bowls and seven trumpets, and seven seals. And oh, we hope in you to shelter us as you sheltered your chosen ones in Egypt. Take care of us, Father, when your hammer falls. So I will see you. In the next lesson. I will see you in lesson 27 as we continue to see God's hammer fall on Egypt that gives us a picture of the end times. Shalom.